You are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here. For those of you new to the show, what we do is break down strategies, ideas, and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Stimulus is a production of Orman Physician Coaching, where we help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, career quagmires, leadership challenges, maladaptive habits, and behaviors. It's professional growth and personal development. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can find it all at our new website, roborman.com. That is also where you will find the complete show notes for this or any other episode. And on that website, you can learn more about one-on-one coaching. And should you feel so inclined, sign up for a free coaching discovery session. All right, on today's show, in the studio, we had him in person, special guest, good friend of the pod, Dr. Mike Weinstock. Now, that's a name that is probably familiar to many of you, but not all. So for the uninitiated, Mike is an expert on patient safety and medical legal issues. He's published extensively in multiple journals, including JAMA, Annals of Emergency Medicine. He's the author of the Bounce Back series, which dissects medical, legal, and patient care pitfalls in seemingly, sometimes seemingly straightforward cases. And in today's episode, in this conversation, the core of this conversation centers around patient signouts. Are they a good idea? A bad idea? What are the pitfalls? That's the bulk of it. But in the beginning, we kind of meander through a bit of random stuff. We talk about medically defensible charting, documenting medical decision-making. At the very end, I've got a little postscript regarding some publications on patient handoffs. And with that, let's get to it. Our conversation with Dr. Mike Weinstock. Well, Mike, so a lot of the audience is going to know you. A lot of Physicians who have read bounce backs have seen your lectures. You are an expert in the medical legal arts and you specialize in kind of that razor's edge between doing the right thing, but also being medical legally sound. And hopefully those things have a big overlap in the Venn diagram. Fair assessment about what you do? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, what I really think that patient safety is the primary thing and then the legal part falls back to that. So in a sense, if you are being legally protective of yourself, there's a risk that you're doing something that could potentially cause patient harm if you're only doing that. But if you're looking primarily about patient safety, and then your documentation reflects good medical care, that's where you're being medical legally protective. So there are folks listening to this who are not in medicine. And they think they know what they want when they go in to see the doctor. And you just said something that I think is really important. If you are doing things just to protect yourself, which you'd call defensive medicine, that could lead to a worse outcome. We had an article published a few years ago, which talked about how we balance our own risk as physicians, our short-term medical legal risk with the long-term health of the patient. And it's interesting a phrase that you'll know as an emergency physician, of course, is we can say to a patient, oh, it's too risky to send you home with your chest pain. And the patient says, too risky to me? And the doctor says in a joking way, no, too risky to me. So, you know, you sometimes think back to yourself, I 
want to admit that patient, that's the safest thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. However, there's pretty specific harms to admitting a patient, as you know. Things like sundowners, where you might crawl out of bed and fall, or a blood clot, or what's called a nosocomial infection, which is a hospital type of organism that might be difficult to treat, or false positive tests, or just even the expense and hassle of being admitted to the hospital. So yeah, absolutely. If we think about what's best for the patient, usually that's the thing that's best medical legally. However, what I really like to do is to make sure that our thought process is also reflected in the record. And someone later, if there is an adverse outcome, doesn't need to guess about it. Oh my gosh. That, okay. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's a lot here. And listeners, we have a case that you can see that from the title of this, we're going to talk about handoffs and sign outs. And are they a good idea? Or are they a bad idea? And we're just kind of getting into some other stuff right now. So <laughs> this might be a bit of a circuitous discussion. Before we get into the main topic, actually, listeners, you might be able to hear in the background, Melissa is making some Japanese curry. There you go. Oh, it sounds, it's like we're in a kitchen. I want to leave those sounds in there because yeah. that's what we're going to have for dinner right after this. And it's going to be so good. It's sort of teasing the listener, Rob. You know what that is? That's verisimilitude <laughs> right there. It's like you're there. You're in the yeah. midst of it. This Japanese, oh, it's become the house specialty. Our friend Tom Wilson came for a visit and he taught us how to make this and now it's become a staple. Oh, I'd never heard of Japanese curry until he made it for us. Maybe we should just stop talking right now and go eat. <laughs> that <laughs> Would that be bad? <laughs> We're focusing on this show about how to live and practice with intent. And this a lot has to do with what you do in your medical practice. You give a talk or probably a series of talks on legally defensible charting. And we've given talks together in conferences about this, and I've hammered you on it over and over because I was looking for this. What is the answer? And the answer is, there is no answer because there's not (laughs) a template or a rubric you have to follow that, yep, this is what a medically defensive chart looks like. And if this goes up in court, you're going to be totally fine. It's more of principles of medically defensible charting. Well, yesterday, Rob, I spoke with John Moorhead. The two of us gave a lecture at the Oregon College of Emergency Physicians Conference here in Oregon. One of the things that we talked about was the chart that you talk about as far as specifically documenting what is going on with the encounter, it's important to realize that we don't need to be right every time. In other words, if we miss something and miss a diagnosis and the patient has a bad outcome, that doesn't equal medical malpractice. Medical malpractice is more defined by two things, poor data gathering and poor medical decision-making. So just for example, if a patient has a blood clot in their lungs, which we all have heard about, and probably a lot of us know someone that has had that, right? Usually you get a blood clot in your leg and it goes up to your lungs. Well, if we don't ask any questions in a patient with chest pain to that, that's poor data gathering. The patient has a pulmonary embolism and dies. That's malpractice. On the other hand, if we ask questions to that and they don't have any of those concerning findings and In our medical decision-making, we determine that the risk of getting the test for that, which is a CT angiogram of the chest, and we determine that the risk of the test is greater than the risk of missing the disease, and then that one in a thousand or one in a million thing happens, that's not medical malpractice. And you still could get sued for that, but that doesn't equal malpractice. And that's why for these marginal cases, documenting our thought process in the chart is so vitally important. So what would be an example of what you're talking about? So every first-year medical student knows that if you're on birth control pills and you're coughing up blood, that's a pretty concerning finding for a 
blood clot in the lungs for a pulmonary embolism. But consider this scenario of a 20-year-old woman who is on birth control pills and comes in coughing up blood. Well, why would you not work that patient up for a blood clot in their lungs? Maybe your medical decision-making, as reflected in your documentation in the chart, reads something like this. She is on birth control pills. She has some blood streak sputum, but she also has a temperature of 102 degrees, generalized body aches. So do her two siblings who are also in the room with her and had some blood streak sputum after a particularly vigorous episode of coughing. There's no evidence of low oxygen level, increased respiratory rate, increased heart rate. And through a process of shared decision-making, my discussion with her was that the risk of doing the test is greater than the risk of missing the disease. She agrees and will come back if things get worse. Now, that's a really nice, I think, example of how we can show in the chart what we have done, why we cared more about the patient than covering our own butts, and how then, if there is that one in a thousand or one in 10,000 situation happened that she did have that blood clot in her lungs, that we could say, this is how I made my medical decision-making after adequate data gathering. To me, that's not malpractice. You could get sued for anything, but it's very hard for me to imagine that an attorney would take that, and if they did, that they would be able to prevail. Question for you. Now, yes. listeners, Mike came up for a visit. We decided to do a podcast, so this one is a little bit free-flowing. There is a structure to it, but right now, you're not in the structured part, so I'm just <laughs> getting to pick Mike's brain. Okay, I have a chest pain template, and I'm going to publish this on the blog, my exact chest pain template. And listeners, you can see what I did and what I have and do not use this as an example of blah, 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 disclaimer of medical legal excellence, blah, blah. But my chest pain MDM, it's a lot of pros. For all of the things that could kill you with chest pain, I have a paragraph of why I don't think it's that. So if somebody comes with chest pain, I would put it on my, my chart, chest pain MDM. And then I'd go through it. And then at time of discharge, I would say, all right, did I actually do these things? I'd use it as a fail safe to say, I just said I'm ruling out aortic dissection. The things I have on here don't really rule it out, but it's how I thought about it. Like pr pretty much I thought about dissection. I don't think they have it. I thought about pulmonary embolism, perk zero, no further workup. Or I thought about chest pain, they're, they're hard as this, and this is my discussion. So you're looking at that. In your opinion, is that too much? Is it like, you got the Magna Carta there, buddy. <laughs> you don't need it. Or it's like, no, that is actually how to do it. You've done something really smart. Is you've done a tried and true checklist approach yeah, to checklist, that. Yeah. And you've also self-checked yourself for errors. So for example, when I have a syncope patient, and I get an EKG, which is really the only test you need in a patient who has passed out, I will not only document irregular rate and rhythm, and no ischemic changes. But I also then document, again, to check myself, there's no evidence of Brigada syndrome, WPW, prolonged QT, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, those types of things. And it checks me for that. And you're doing that exact same thing. So as long as those things have been done, that's, that's the important part. And I would say that I will oftentimes ask attendees of conferences, raise your hand if you can confidently tell me all the elements of the pulmonary embolism rule out criteria of the PERC rule yeah. as a medical by Jeff Klein. Very few people can just do that. Now, they might use something like MD Calc on yeah. the computer, which is a really smart way to do it. So if you're doing something like this, it's a good idea, but only if you have done those things. Now, I will give one quick caveat is that just for example, with the perk rule, 
do you know if your heart rate is 100 that you're not perk negative? They tried between 100 and greater than 100, and they found that even at 100, the perk rule didn't work. So it's interesting. You have to know enough about the rule to be able to do it. Yes. And then the other just very quick point of this is that what happens if you're over the age of 50? Well, now you can't use the perk rule. So unfortunately, you're not able to use those things either. So there's no perk positive. There's only perk negative. And I think it's a great idea that you're doing those things. And probably you're able to use that in 30 or 35, maybe 40% of patients that you see. But of ones that don't fulfill those, or like my scenario, if you're on oral contraceptives, again, you can't use that either. So I have this perk rule, this rule out of pulmonary embolism where you don't have to do any further workup. I, as you're alluding to, I have it written out on my thing. And I, I love that you said that you can't use it if any of them fail. But a mistake that people make is that they think, oh, you fell out of perk, so I have to do the workup. Right. But really, it's a one directional rule yes. that if you fail perk, you're at the same place where you started. You yeah. just can't rule them out by perk. It, that's exactly right. And I tell people all the time, you can be perk negative, but you can't be perk positive. Because right now, you and me are perk positive, <laughs> perk right? Positive, <laughs> but we're not exactly. having PEs. We're over 50. It's an age-based <laughs> thing here, right? <laughs> but, you know, oftentimes I will still document those perk. And I have this thing that I do. It's called like perk plus. That's You'll never hear that anywhere else. But I just sort of made that up. But it's actually 10 different things I added to his stuff just a little bit. And the reason I did that is because say you have a person who, I don't know, had a PE 20 years ago or something, or they're over 50, you can still, I think, in your medical decision-making say, they don't have all these other things. I can't use the PERC rule, but still my medical decision-making is that they don't need further workup for PE. Love it. Let's get to the case at hand that has to do with handoffs, sort of. And it has to do with a lot of things. There's so much that comes up with this. This is actually fascinating. And a big narrative in emergency medicine is that, and in a lot of ways true, is that handoffs are one of the biggest medical legal risks that we have. And to cut to the chase, the reason I feel that is such a big risk is because usually the receiving physician does not take adequate ownership of mm, that patient. So yeah. we're going to see how this comes in in this specific case that I'm going to tell you about here. And I will say that even in my emergency department now, there are people who are very reluctant to give a patient to another physician, even at the end of a night shift. And one thing that we think about is the fact that to be successful in a career in emergency medicine or medicine or really any specific career, I mean, good job for getting accepted in medical school, good job for getting in a EM residency. That's fantastic, not diminishing that at all. But the way that you're successful is by completing a career in emergency medicine. And you have to figure out a way to complete a career. For example, because you're interested in education or because you really like bedside emergency medicine, or maybe eventually you get interested in the administrative aspects of it, that type of thing. But one way that I can tell for 100% sure that is not a recipe for finishing a career is by staying two or three hours at the end of every night shift, like happens oftentimes I've seen in physicians in my ED and the previous ED that I worked in. And you just can't do that for a 30-year career in medicine. Yeah, I, I say four hours after, but that was because of my own inefficiency. I didn't have systems in place to say, how do I get out of here on time? It's because I was tired and spinning my wheels and didn't dispo well or didn't have good processes. And it definitely led to some fatigue and burnout because between your 
shifts in EM. You ever you ever play the video game Mortal Kombat? No, I've, I've seen it though. I have not played myself. Classic 80s. So you've got a health bar, right? You've got this health bar that's over you and you're getting kicked and punched and spells are coming at you and your health bar is going down, down, down. And maybe you like build up, you get a little bit more health. And that's what your shift is like. And your health and your energy, your mental, emotional, spiritual, physical energy, they're all depleted. And that four hour stay over just depletes you more. Now you need to recharge. And the question is, how do you recharge between? But it just depletes you more. And that accumulation of depletion does add up. I can speak personally for it adding up over years and years and years. It just, it actually leads to a little bit more pre-shift dread, a little bit more post-shift lassitude. Yeah. And and in fact, that's very interesting that you say that in the light of this case is a patient that came in seemingly intoxicated. They were altered. It was this patient's birthday and they were out partying all night long. And the patient came in an hour and a half before the next doctor got there. And so there's usually this magic hour that we have. If you come in an hour or greater before your relief gets there, you're still going to see that patient. If it's like five or 10 minutes or maybe even half an hour and the patient seems fairly stable, yeah, you can leave that patient for the next doctor, right? Well, it's such an interesting philosophical question is what's best for me and what's best for my group? What's best for my hospital? What's best for my ED? So maybe it's best for you not to see that patient coming in, but it's not best for the hospital, especially if there is something potentially bad going on with that. So in light of that overall bird's eye view of things, this patient came in an hour and a half before. It took them a while to write the patient up. In other words, to get the vital signs, the patient was refusing, the nurse was being pushed away. So really, it wasn't until probably 45 or 50 minutes before the relief was supposed to get there that they even had the patient written in from the nursing perspective. The patient was talking, they did have vital signs done, their heart it was minimally above 100. A little bit tachycardic, but not that much. And as it turns out, the physician who was working during the night did check the chart several times. And they were able to look at this with metadata through the electronic medical record and to see that they did this. The physician was sufficiently concerned and had checked several times, but didn't really feel like in a busy night. And again, they subpoenaed the triage log and all that kind of stuff, found that it wasn't like the person was just slacking in the break room. They were really busy working with a lot of different patients that had come in with really bad stuff. So when the physician came in to work their shift they saw this patient as their first patient, as they typically would, because the patient had been waiting the longest and was a little bit altered. And they appropriately ordered a CAT scan of the brain, and they ordered some labs and some toxicology tests, which we can have an argument whether those are helpful or not, but they did order those tests. Well, soon after, and when I say soon, like 20 minutes later, before they could even get the blood drawn or the patient over to get the CAT scan of the brain because she was altered, the patient went into cardiac arrest. Young person, in yeah. their 20s, intoxicated. Coming. Yeah. So <laughs> this is, on a night shift, this is five patients a night, young and not necessarily birthday, but young and intoxicated. And you bring, bring up a couple points. So there was the doc who had an hour and a half left in their shift. There is an internal motivator not to accumulate tasks at the end of your shift, especially when you're already so busy. But that busyness, I have a question for you because you've got such insight on these cases. When a case goes to trial or a case gets analyzed by the plaintiff's attorney, 
and the defense attorney, is your level of busyness seen as an extenuating circumstance to say, this guy was pinned with five ambulances at once. And then this drunk patient came in and yeah, of course they looked at the chart, but they're not going to prioritize that. Yeah. All that's discoverable. So I have another case. I won't go into all the details, but one of the exhibits at trial was the triage log showing all the patients that had come in in the previous several hours, what their presented complaint was and what their final diagnosis was. So whereas if you have five ambulances come in with significant injuries and all those patients, and then someone has to wait in the lobby, I would think that you could use them that way. But more often the way that I've seen it is a person tries to make an excuse for example, it was very busy, and then they look back at the triage log and say, you were busy because you had like two ankle sprains, uh, gastroenteritis, a nosebleed, and a patient with severe depression, something like that, right? So it's like, which of those were more emergent that you needed to see, or which of those precluded your ability to take good care of this patient that actually did have an adverse outcome? So it sounds like the answer is it depends and it depends how the attorneys use it. It's not like you can say, I was busy. I'm off the hook. I'm off right. the hook. for seeing But that. one of the things also we had at the discussion yesterday at the conference was whether you should document something like this is a COVID pandemic and resources are not able to be used as normal. And for that reason, just excuse me if I ever don't take good care of a patient. And so John Moorhead and I were making a joke about it and sort of laughing. Does that really decrease your ability to get a good history from the patient when you're sitting at the bedside? The patient's there, you're there. I mean, in what way does COVID decrease your ability to ask that patient questions and get answers from the patient, right? Now you get it. If like early in COVID, we weren't sending people over to CAT scan because we had to clean the room for two hours. But in general, because that stuff is discoverable, unless there is something truly extenuating, my thought is it's a bad idea to document how busy it is. Because in some ways you're saying is, it was so busy that I couldn't take good care of this patient who eventually had a bad outcome. Okay. So we're an hour and a half from shift change. A young, intoxicated patient comes in and they are, it's not like it's a mystery. They're not intoxicated. They are drunk and they're acting inebriated and just trying to get out of the bed and doing all these things like, yes, oh, this is an intoxicated yes. patient. You've got a doc who's pinned. They're super busy. The ED is just calamitous. Like, okay, they can wait. Because you're always making a decision, right? Yeah. Risk versus benefit. Am I going to stop caring for this patient and care for this other patient? So if you have plenty of time, it's not a problem. But if you don't, that's when they have to make that decision. Next doc comes in. So first doc hasn't seen them, but has looked at the chart. Correct. Next doc comes in and sees them pretty early on, gets the workup going, the you know, altered mental status workup pretty yes. much, where you're getting labs, you're getting a CAT scan, you get blah, blah, blah. And 20 minutes later, this young intoxicated patient goes into cardiac arrest. Not expected. What Not happens? expected at all. And for myself, 27 years of experience between us, almost half a century of emergency department experience, 100,000 patients I've seen, it is really uncommon for a 21 or a 25 or a 28-year-old to come in talking and then to go into cardiac arrest. So that's exactly what happened. And the physician was right on it. And they intubated the patient correctly and well done. They put it in a central line. They gave the patient a lot of fluids. And they eventually, after resuscitation, which was successful, so they had ROSC, re return of spontaneous circulation, they sent the patient to CAT scan. 
where it was found that the patient had a comminuted pelvic fracture. And that is why she arrested. She had all this blood going into the pelvic region, and she didn't have enough circulating blood volume to have her heart continue beating, right? So what happens is they initiate blood transfusion, they initiate a transfer, which took a little bit prolonged time because the patient arrested several other times during this course. And unfortunately, en route to the trauma center, the patient arrested one final time and was unable to be resuscitated and she died. So young intoxicated patient is a stealth trauma and has a hemorrhagic traumatic arrest. And what it was found later is that she was in a car accident, but she was then taken to someone's house And that's where the EMS personnel picked her up at the house and was unclear at the time that it was trauma. And she came in from EMS with the chief complaint of intoxication. Was there a record of EMS note of any trauma? Like, was EMS aware? Was nursing handoff aware? It's unclear. Yeah. There was notation that she might have been involved in a motor vehicle accident earlier, like hours and hours before. But it wasn't clear, and it certainly wasn't clear to the emergency physician because that physician who didn't see the patient most likely would have seen that patient right away. But that really gets the essence of this thought of ownership and this thought of handoffs. Before we get into that, this ownership and handoffs, the big topic for today, we're like the Serpiginous River, buddy. Yeah, baby. Love it. So- You taught me this over a decade ago, and it was something that I started doing. And so it was half of my EM career, I did this, and it actually made me feel more comfortable. And it led to better care because it led to some discoveries. In my medical decision-making, my ED course, first thing, nursing notes reviewed. Next thing, paramedic note reviewed, or more commonly, which is 99 out of 100 times, paramedic note not available at time evaluation. And document that because... If it's on the chart, you're responsible for it. And then addressing any things in there. It's like patient noted by triage nurse to have worst headache of life. I inquired about this and patient said, yeah, I have the worst headache of my life every day versus yes, thunderclap, horrible. If the patient tells one of the healthcare team and we're all part of this team and the nurse, of course, 100%, just like us, we're part of this team, right? Says that to somebody, you can understand how a patient who tells registration and then they tell the billing person and then they tell the tech and then they tell the nurse. And by the time you get in there, they're done telling that story, that right? Done. Yeah. But it's still on us. It's still our responsibility, absolutely, to see the triage note and to see why that patient came in. And there's another case of a patient. This is a 41-year-old woman in Texas, and she had a chief complaint of chest pain, and her final diagnosis was hypertension and bronchospasm. She died the next day of a heart attack. And in the end, she told us, she asked the question, I have chest pain, am I having a heart attack? And that question wasn't adequately answered. And of course, we know now that the answer was yes for that. The crazy part about that case that maybe you know or haven't heard yet is that the physician who saw the patient in the ED, that patient's own mother had died of a heart attack after going to the primary care doctor and being told she was a nervous housewife. Wow. Wow, wow. So even though it was that close to that physician, still they had to stand on the stand and Mm. somehow try to defend the care they gave that they knew was inadequate. So we're going to get back to this case to the matter of handoffs and of ownership. 
And I want to ask you this, because I, as I think about this, you had this doc who's got an hour and a half in their shift, and here's an intoxicated young patient who's like your five other intoxicated young patients you're going to see right. on your shift. <laughs> First off, would it have made, we don't really know what signs of trauma there were, but would it have made a difference if that doc had seen that patient earlier and gotten the workup going, et cetera? And I ask that because the doc who eventually saw the patient 20 minutes before arrest didn't do anything beyond the altered mental status workup. So would there have even been a benefit to that doc seeing the patient early? In this situation, the answer is yes. And the answer is yes because now, if they had a crystal ball and they knew that she was involved in a trauma, they knew the extent of the trauma, and somehow they were able to clinically suspect this pelvic fracture, and then to get the imaging that confirmed it, and then they would initiate blood transfusions while they're sending the patient to the trauma center, we know that she arrested about an hour 45 after she got to the ED. So to me, it feels like, yeah, if you could have made that diagnosis within 15 or 20 minutes of arriving to the ED, we could have saved that patient's life. It still would have been an extremely difficult diagnosis to make, but it really gets to the heart of that initial physician. And I'm not alleging that the physician that initially was there didn't see the patient because they were nervous about handing that patient off to somebody else. My point is just that this is a really nice example of how if we let a patient sit, it could be that we're concerned about medical legal implications to ourselves, whereas we know that the medical legal implications to the whole department or the hospital, or more specifically, the patient safety implications to the actual person we're caring for, that that has to take precedence. This case, I don't know if that was in the thought process of the provider, but it's just a really nice example of how if we do something best for the patient and best for the department, and then we hand that patient off, though there's reluctance some people to do that, my feeling is that's safer, not only for the patient, but also for the physician caring for that patient. Okay, 40 minutes into this podcast, we're getting to the main point. Yeah, right. Sign-out culture, <laughs> you're talking about ownership. And I'm I, curious, what in your mind, and there's no standard of care, there's no best cultural practice, because it's going to be a matter of opinion, because some places you, it's like no sign-out ever, and some places sign-out every patient. And But what in your mind is the ideal sign-out culture? First off, does it exist? And then what does it look like? Well, we're always triaging things in our own minds as physicians, as well as nurses are triaging things in the waiting room. So for example, if I get to work and there's eight patients to see, I'm going to take my best guess as to which are the potentially sickest and more likely to decompensate quickly. And I'm going to see those patients first. I mean, that's pretty basic with anything you do in life. I mean, emergency medicine certainly as a part of that. As far as the physician who, for example, is working their whole shift and they're right at the end of it, and a patient comes in like an hour and one minute before with an ankle sprain, maybe not that big a deal. But a patient who comes in who has chest pain, just for example, because that's a common thing that everybody knows about, why not meet the paramedics at the door? Why not walk in the room? Why not get the workup started and then hand that patient off? Because we know that if we find evidence of a what's called an ST elevation MI, that we can send that patient emergently to the catheterization lab, and that does decrease mortality. You said something there that I want to pause on because there are a lot of young physicians and APPs that listen to this show. And getting the EMS report, getting the report 
verbally from paramedics, I think is a level one priority. It's gold. It's red alert. So you're sitting there, you're doing your chart, this, that, and the other thing. And the paramedic comes in with a patient and you think, okay, do I finish this chart or do I go get that paramedic report? It's an interruption of flow, right? It's an interruption of flow. We want to not go see that patient. Yeah. Yeah. However, in the end, we're going to save ourselves time (sighs) because I'm sure you've done this and I'll say in a self-deprecating way, I've done a whole workup on a nursing home patient who was brought in by the paramedics only then to eventually call the nursing home staff and say, oh, they weren't sending for confusion. They have dementia. They were sending because their blood pressure was 72 when we checked it this morning. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I needed a whole septic workup. I have determined that based on my CAT scan of the brain that they don't have a reversible cause of their confusion because they have dementia, right? So it's really, really important to see that patient when they get there because in the end, it's going to save you time. But in our brain, the way we work, right? We want to finish what we're doing. Finish the task so we can move on to another task. So back to the question of the ideal sign-out culture. We're kind of getting into some specifics of how the practice goes of emergency medicine, but the ideal sign-out culture yes. in your mind, what does it look like? So to me, when I get in there for a shift, I ask the person I'm relieving, what can I do to help you? What patients can I take? That's the first question I ask. Now, there's a couple of caveats. Like if five squads are sitting at the door, then it's going to be difficult for me to take three or four handoffs at that time. But I would like the physician who's leaving to give me two or three patients. I would like them to do that unless they only have two or three patients and they can finish those up in 20 minutes. But I would like every doctor that's leaving to be able to finish their task because we talk so much about burnout and how tough it is these days and how tough it is with COVID. It's like, this is something that we can do. You know, you can raise someone's pay, but that doesn't decrease some of the frustrations we have in the ED. There's certain things we can't control. It's like the serenity prayer, right? You know, I mean, we can't control the fact that patients are coming in and aren't able to give a good history. We can't control the fact that people don't take care of themselves and they might have advanced diabetes or elevated blood pressure. But there are some things that we can control in this age of burnout. And that main thing is helping each other. And to me, this seems like the most primary, the most obvious and logical. This is like the lowest hanging fruit of the way that we can help each other is to say, give me two patients, three patients, four, one, whatever the number is, so you can leave at the end of your shift and you're not there for that extra amount of time and you can get some rest after your night shift because you're coming back again tonight at seven. That's what my ideal handoff is, is that I get two or three patients from that physician who's leaving and I, as a fresh set of eyes and ears and energy, can go and see those patients and take ownership of them. And I'll tell you something else that I do on top of that is I will send a note, whether it's by text or by email, no HIPAA stuff that I obviously reveal, but you know, your patient in bed five had an elevated troponin and I admitted them, for example. Or I sent the patient in bed seven home because their CAT scan came back negative. And that lets that physician who is giving the handoff know that I have taken ownership and that patient was well cared for. Taking ownership so key, you know, when you receive a handoff, you are absorbing patients when you start your shift and you kind of don't want to be bothered by someone else's work and you're getting hammered and it's stressful. And it definitely takes volition to think, okay, I own this patient now. This is my patient now. It takes concerted and conscious effort 
say they are mine, not just, all right, well, it's this other guy's and, you know, ho- hopefully the nurse can take care of it. I don't actually have to work on them. Well, let me flip that on its head a little bit yeah. and sort of a maybe annoying glass half full type of philosophy. Someone's giving me a patient that already has the workup almost completed. They've already written the note in the chart. It's like, why wouldn't I want that patient? You know, I mean, that's like the best patient to have. <laughs> I can actually just care for that patient. I don't need to do anything more than some very cursory documentation and then just make a decision based on some of the information or maybe additional data that I'm going to get by talking to the patient or re-examining them. I mean, it seems like that patient is way easier than the patient who comes in out of the lobby or off the paramedic stretcher. I think some of the most appreciated words when you are at the end of your shift are the other doc coming up to you and saying, hey, what can I do to get you out of here? Like manna from heaven. Manna, yeah. But not everyone's comfortable. Not everyone is comfortable signing out patients. And you had said before that you got to look at the arc of your career and how does your job fit into the rest of your life? But some docs, it's like, nope, I'm working them up. I can't let go of this. That mentality in medicine is pretty prevalent. I mean, the fact is we have gone through medical school. We have done a residency working whatever, 80 or 100 hours a week. We've really, really entered into this culture, which is a culture of, I can do anything, I'm strong, I have no weaknesses, and nothing and no one can break me. That's the culture in medicine that we have. And the fact is, I'm in that also. I feel like mentally super strong and I can take anything. However, nobody can do that for 30 or 35 yeah. or 40 years when they're staying four hours or even two hours at the end of every shift. You just can't do it. It breaks you down. And it's not fair, not just to yourself or maybe the patients who maybe you're altering their management because you want to do something a little bit quicker or not doing certain tests because it'll take longer and you're at the end of your shift, but it's not fair to your family either, your significant other or your kids. It's not fair to them to put one patient, you know, that I'm waiting for lab to come back for 40 minutes at the end of my shift in front of your family who's waiting for you to come home for dinner. We have this ethos in medicine of the patient always comes first. The patient always comes first. The patient is a high priority, Mm. but you're important too. And you come first because if you're not healthy, then you're not going to be able to give care. It's not that the patient is just an afterthought, but everything sacrificed for the patient. Yes, it is about the patient or work, the patient, the patient, the patient. What do I do? How am I the best advocate for this patient? And we rarely think about how am I the best advocate for myself? It's like in the airline, isn't it? When they say, like, in the unlikely event of a water landing, <laughs> whatever, like we lose cabin pressure, place the oxygen mask on yourself first and so then so. on your child. Right. So absolutely, if we are not practicing self-care, we're not going to be able to adequately, compassionately care for others. We can go through the motions. And after, you know, for example, myself, seeing 100,000 patients in my career, I can go through the motions. I can get through a shift if I'm burnt out. And I'm not saying myself, I'm saying like all of us collectively as emergency physicians, if we're burnt out or if we're distracted or if we're tired or your baby was up all night crying or you had an argument with your significant other or whatever might happen, you can do that. But can you do it well? Can you move from standard of care to excellence in care? Can you compassionately care for patients in that scenario? I don't think so. And practicing self-care, like you're saying, is vitally important, not just for ourselves, but for our patients also. Okay. I 
did not see it coming that sign out culture was going to be about self care. Wow, wow, way to way to arc it back. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's what I'm all about. The circle of life. The circle of handing the patients circle off. Circle of wellness. Right. All right. <laughs> I'm going to give a, a, a personal take here. I think I've worked in seven or eight. EDs over my career. Some of them, I worked there for years, like over a decade, some of them locums. And I saw sign-out culture in pretty much every permutation you could imagine experienced it. And in the end, to your point, I think not only is it a good thing, it is a necessity, especially now, but it needs to have constraints. Yeah. Sign out needs to have constraints. So at my wife's old hospital, I think they did this really well. And you were getting into this as far as like, hey, here's how you do it. You're you're loosey goosey. But you got to have everybody on board. So at their hospital, if a patient came in 60 minutes or less before the end of their shift, not that doc's responsibility, meaning you did not have to finish your workup, you actually didn't even have to charge. But if the patient came in before then, it was your responsibility. So what this did was it de-incentivized not seeing patients in the last hour of your shift because you could just go in, hey, I'm just going to peek my head in and get things going. And hey, how you doing? I'm not going to be your final doc, but let me just get a quick history just so we can get some labs order and, and expedite your care. And you don't feel like you've just picked up five new people and you're going to be there four hours after your shift. But there has to be consistency across the group because there were some docs in her group who did not comply with this. So number one, it, it needs to be consistent across the group. It's a discussion in the group meeting, not just like, ah, oh, this is sort of tacitly what we do. And it's just like the way that it is. No, it's just... We have, it could be a policy and a policy might protect you. Policies generally end up protecting you unless you don't follow them and then they end up burning you. Everyone needs to be on board. Can't be this guy signs out or that guy never signs out. It's like discipline equals freedom. Structure and constraint in this area actually give you freedom of practice. And number two, the type of sign out needs to be agreed upon. What we're talking about here interwoven in our conversation is a case about someone who didn't get seen for a while and had a bad outcome. Now, personally, I don't know if they were seen by the original doc, there would have been a different outcome because the second doc didn't identify that there was trauma, but neither here nor there. But I think there's a few types of sign out. One is you're getting towards the end of your shift and you're getting things started on a patient so that you can identify acute illness and you can get their workup going. You can improve throughput and perhaps even pick up the stealth or even overt <laughs> dying patient. A problem with that is the doc picking up might not be on board with what you're doing. It's like, I wouldn't have gotten this test and that test. And now I'm you know obligated to follow it up and kind of a cost of doing business there. You know, it can be a, be a little challenging, but cost of doing business. The other thing is patients who have had a significant workup already, and your thought process is already stamped on their ED course. And I think, I'm curious your thoughts. I think the sign out needs to be a couple things. First, the sign out needs to be a binary decision. We are waiting for X, Y, and Z, and the results lead to disposition X or Y. Now, of course, things could change. The patient might be unstable or whatever, but I think that a binary decision works well. I'm not saying that this is best practice. You know, we're not talking about sign out best practices and all that, but what I found to be most effective personally is go to the board or the computer. Now you sit down next to each other on the computer and go through the results so far in each of the sign out patients. And I'd like to say that, yes, you should have a formalized process of the S bar, the whatever. Docs never do it. 
ever. They never do that. It's well, so true. <laughs> maybe the, the nurses do it. The yeah. nurses totally do it. Yeah. I've never, ever, I've seen it try to be implemented in so many EDs like, oh, we're going to take lessons from Formula One racing and handoffs and this and that. Never. It never sticks. I don't right. know if the nurses yeah. do it better than docs. And okay, docs, you have permission to not do it because you're not going to do it anyway. Then after you've gone through board rounds and gone through here, because you've got decision fatigue and you might miss stuff. And I've had docs many times just say, whoa, whoa, aren't you thinking about this? Like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. Then, and this takes time and it's hard to do this when you're really busy or pinned, do sign out rounds. Introduce the new doc to the patients you're signing them out to that they will be doing the final dispo. Takes time and docs who fly through their shifts, it's like, they're going to be really frustrated by this and may not do it. But personally, I found it important to be anal retentive about that process and really deliberate about it at the end of shift because it is such a high risk interval. We're talking about, ah, yes, the sign out culture is good for your wellness and your self-care and this and that. This is a great thing. It's also one of the riskiest times in that patient's ED course. And you've got to be structured and you've got to be consistent in how you do it. Right. And I wasn't really specifically talking about how that handoff happens. Yeah. Just that it's important that a handoff would occur, but only if the receiving doctor does take ownership of that patient. So yeah, there are a lot of different ways that handoffs could be done and there's best practices of how they're done. But in my experience, when you have several patients that you're handing off and the other person is going to then go in and see the patient, plus or minus examine them and review their record, this is able to be done. And in fact, look at any hospitalist doctor. They don't continue to care for the patient for the whole 10 days, every single day when they're there for pneumonia. There's different people on the weekends, and there's different people during the day. And the same way with all of us. I mean, every patient we see is a new patient. So if we're seeing a new patient that someone's already done a whole bunch of work on, well, make sure we don't fall prey to diagnosis momentum where just because the previous provider thought there was a certain diagnosis and we're not opening our minds up or we don't have anchoring bias, that we allow our thought press to be anchored to what we see initially and don't allow subsequently obtained superior data to change that somehow. Mm. But in the mm. end, we yeah. really, whatever approach that you're doing with the handoff, I still feel that it's super important, especially in this age of COVID, that we help each other out. And one of the most important times that we can do that as that end of shift. When I get there, when the person gets there leaving me, they're the fresh cavalry arriving in the midst of battle to assist. That's when we need them most. And that's when we need them to be most helpful. So you and I have very different, I think, mental processes. I was always easily overwhelmed at the beginning of a shift. And you're a great parallel processor. I'm more of a, a serial processor. You know, when I have too many data points, like, well, spinning my wheels, overwhelmed. And so for me, the structure I had to put in place to be that doc who said, how can I get you out of here? Versus if I didn't do this, I would be, oh God, you're giving me more of your patience. Oh my God, I can't handle this. So was I had to get there early. I had to get there early to start getting my workups done, started on the patients who were waiting to see me. That way I could receive the sign out of that other doc. Otherwise I wouldn't take ownership. I sucked at receiving sign out if I was stressed. So sometimes getting in early personally is a better move than staying way late. I love when people get there early when I'm finishing my shift. I just have to say, honestly, I've worked over 5,000 shifts. And sometimes in the summer, I like 
jump in the shower and I towel dry super fast and I drive at like a million miles an hour and I get there like 20 seconds before my shift starts. That's just the way I do it. And you know, I've tried so many times to get there early. And just like you're saying about the S bar, people aren't going to do it. I just have to say at this point in my career, 27 years in, probably not going to be getting there as early as I should be. But you can yeah. handle it. So I, I, can, handle I, I, it. I couldn't yeah. handle it. I right. couldn't, I, I had to very methodically see my new patients. And then at that moment when that other doc was ready, I'd be like, okay, now I have breathing room to be attentive to this. Otherwise it was dangerous. Now that I think about it, dangerous for the patients if I wasn't that way. I have a lot of bad qualities, but one of my good qualities <laughs> is you're exactly right. I can parallel process very well. I can process with distraction, like all that kind of stuff. You know, a, a lot of bad parts about me, but one of the good parts, <laughs> if you even consider it good, is that when I get to the ED, I can take four or five patients and some of the new ones coming in. And that's just sort of what I expect. And maybe that's the cost of doing business of me not getting there 20 minutes early for every shift, which might've been like weeks or months of my life after 27 years, right? Oh boy. <laughs> wow. So, so much more to discuss, but we're going to cut it there. So what a delight to, to have you here. It was an honor. Thanks so much, man. Who knew that sign-out culture would be a, a tool for well-being? I thought this was going to be like a seven-minute discussion. Yeah. Well, right. you know, well... <laughs> <laughs> it's you and me, though. It's always, right. always no going to be a chat. Sorry, baby. That ain't happening. I loved it. All right. Let's go eat some curry. Let's do it. So the bulk of this conversation, as you've just heard, has been about signing out patients. Now, there are really strong feelings about this on both sides. Some departments have a culture of never or nearly never signing out anyone and still others Heavy sign out. Everyone gets signed out the minute a shift's end, and most are somewhere in between. So we've hit on arguments in favor of sign out. We've talked about some of the pitfalls as well. And really, the arguments in favor, it comes down to benefit for the patient, benefit for the department. And I'll honestly say for the what this whole show is about, benefit for the clinician. And really, this is a matter of culture. But if it's part of the culture, when you look at the literature, so what's the best practice here? Much of what's out there in the literature calls out for standardization of the process. I haven't read anything that says, yeah, you know what, best practice, just kind of do what you do and you're all good. That's, that's not it. That's not what the papers have to say. And I bring that up because in this discussion, I poo-pooed standardization a bit because I frankly have never met a doc who complied with a standardized sign-out procedure for more than a week, you know, checklist manifesto. That's great. I know some of you do. You've told me you do. I've just never seen it personally, even though we know it's the best practice. To wit, from the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2018, quote, a sign-out curriculum and retention of this skill has been identified as a priority and requirement in resident training by the ACGME. Unfortunately, there is no established curriculum or validated method to guide teaching this skill in emergency medicine. It's herding cats. Everyone is everywhere. It's whatever is your secret sauce. That's what you do. But there is some evidence of things that work. I mean, you know, you say, oh, we'll take this from the airline industry or we'll take this from auto racing or whatever, you know, places that have cultures of safety or high reliability organizations. There was a study in 2021 British Medical Journal. So here's some evidence in favor of standardization. So this study found that after implementation of a standardized handoff procedure, and they used 
iPass, I-P-A-S-S. We'll put links to this in the show notes. And I'll say that digging into iPass, it's pretty good. I have seen so many of these standardized things come and go. They all have good intent, but usually you start out thinking you're going to get a you know, metaphorical little light backpack so you can do some quick bivy camping and you end up with an 80 pound frame pack that's just a freaking leviathan on your shoulders. But the iPass, actually, you know what? I think it might be useful if you're looking for something to say, yeah, how could we structure this? But back to the paper, using iPass, they found, quote, the average percent of omissions of crucial information per handoff declined 53% relative decrease. Pretty, pretty good. And there was no change in handoff time. And that's one of the things that's like, okay, I'm going to do handoff. I got to go through this whole rigmarole and this process. Well, it's not going to cost you anything except just getting used to the process. And it's hard, right? Because everyone's got their sign out shorthand and this kind of the, the way you do it. And really, to be fair, this is total... You do you. You know, some people are just not going to be comfortable with sign out. Some people are not going to be comfortable with standardization. They will never be comfortable with anything ever. Never sign out a patient. Great. But if you're going to do it in your department, you know, just doing it in general, great. But having some ideas of here's how we go about it so that you're giving good sign out and so that it's even structured for you to take ownership when a patient is given to you, I think that is the win. That is sticking the landing here. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes to subscribe to our newsletter or learn more about our coaching program, you can hit us up at roborman.com. And if you dig the show, first off, tell a friend. How about that? Like them apples? I like them apples. And then hit the subscribe button in your podcatcher so you don't have to use that vital brain space to remember to download a new one. It'll just pop right up like a strawberry Pop-Tart from an old-timey toaster. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.